Yes, we did. Yes, we can. Thank you. God bless. Hello, and welcome back to 50 Stars Plus, Season 2, Episode 1, New and Improved. Joining me today for the debut episode of our second season is my fantastic co-anchor, Nikola Imfeld from Switzerland. Uh, I got to know him when he was working as a U.S. correspondent in 2018 to 2021 for the Swiss newspaper Blick. Uh, Nikola covered mostly U.S. politics, the Trump administration, and the 2020 U.S. election, as well as the COVID-19 pandemic, Black Lives Matter protests, and more. Uh, he graduated from the Swiss School of Journalism and is also currently studying economics part-time uh, as he has moved to the Economics Bureau at Blick. Welcome, Nicola. Thanks, Alex, for the nice introduction. Um, well, Alex is a policy, policy advocate and political activist from San Diego. He has a master's degree from UC San Diego in public policy, specializing in social inequality and in U.S. national security. He has worked for a number of lawmakers and organizations, including San Diego Mayor Todd Gloria and the California Democratic Party, and has done advocacy work in four countries. Alex wants to become a politician in D.C. down the road. Before he attends law school, though, he's taking a gap year right now and is focusing on writing novels and short stories. An offer politician and uh, something I don't tell. Alex, you definitely <laughs> belong to D.C. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Uh, happy to be back for season two. Yes, me too. And we have a very exciting guest today. We will talk about the... Uh, uh, a very sad thing obviously going on in the world, the war in Ukraine. And we have here Samuel Schumacher, who is a reporter at Blick. And he was just uh, a few days ago in Ukraine for over a week. Uh, he came back actually two days ago. And um, yeah, Samuel, how was Ukraine? Maybe you can introduce yourself a little bit and then tell us how you experienced these last couple of days at the front lines of the war in Ukraine. Thank you, Nicola. Thank you, Alex, for having me. Yeah, um, in, indeed, I am uh, a reporter for Blick. Um, I just joined the network or the newspaper a couple of months ago. I'm really excited to to be uh, back as a reporter and you know getting the chance to cover the most you know uh, current and most important developments and and happenings in the political world around uh, the world. Sadly. Right now, I guess uh, the most important story that we have to keep in our minds and we have to keep looking at is the war in Ukraine. Uh, I just spent uh, two weeks actually in the country. I was traveling via um, uh, train and, and bus to Ukraine and then traveled through Ukraine until uh, I reached the very eastern end, Donbass, um, where the war is raging, you know, as brutally and as cruelly as ever before. Um, it's been a really intense time. It's been a really sad time too. Um, I met lots of people, lots of heroic people who are still trying to hold up uh, the Ukrainians as we all got to know over these past couple of months. Um, they are a nation of fighters. They are a nation of, of truly, um, I would say, you know, patriotic in, in a positive way, uh, heroes who, who do not give up and who really 
put everything into defending their country, not not only on a military level, but also, I'd say, on a cultural level, on a mental level. These people are really impressive. So I'm, I'm really, really impressed by, by what I saw. You mentioned uh, traveling by train. What is the infrastructure uh, looked like? Uh, I know that Russia has been in Maripol and Melitopol and uh, fairly deep into the country for a while. Has that affected transportation there? It has. Um, actually, the western part, I would say the western half of Ukraine still pretty much works uh, as it worked before. Uh, the trains are actually running on schedule. Um, uh, we arrived in Kiev actually two minutes ahead of schedule, uh, which was fascinating, you know, after such a long uh, train trip. Um, if you go further east, uh, you will see that more and more of these train stations along the way are actually completely or, or at least partly destroyed. I had the chance to stop uh, in the city of Kramatorsk, um, where they had a bomb attack on their train station on, eight, on April 8th. Um, around 60 people died, 60 people who were waiting for an evacuation train on, on you know, right next to the tracks. Obviously, a, a, a frightening thing to, to think about, you know, civilians, innocent people, children who are just standing there waiting for a train getting bombed by Russian rockets. That hasn't only happened in, in Kramatorsk. Uh, I think Kramatorsk back then, you know, was one of the, the wi more widely spoken about or the, one of these attacks that was widely spoken about. There's another train station that I got to know in, in Pokrovsk. Uh, that has had the exact same thing happening to itself. So that was bombed as well, just uh, two days before I actually got there. If you walk uh, around these train stations, you know, you see shattered glass on the grounds, you see the walls were sort of falling down. It's not really safe to, to enter these buildings anymore. People still do, you know. Um, but so I, I would say the infrastructure in the West is still pretty much working. The farther east you go, the more you, you know, the closer you get into the Donbass area, the more you see that that war has actually really taken a big toll, not only on the military infrastructure, but also on, on transportation, on civilian life, um, on, you know, on these train stations, but also sadly uh, on lots of apartment blocks, on lots of schools and lots of hospitals. It's a real big mess. Samuel, it's not your first time that you have traveled to Ukraine. You've been there uh, before, uh, since the conflict, uh, the war broke out in the East in 2014 with the annexion of, of the island Krim. You have, um, you have been in the country before. What is different right now with this invasion of Russia moving into other parts of the country? Can you tell us what, what you have seen this time, what you haven't seen uh, before? I'd say one thing that has definitely changed is obviously the mood of the people. I was there just before the war broke out uh, in February. I got back a couple of days uh, before February 24th, this date that we will probably never forget, the start of the war. Um, back then when you were talking to people and you were asking them, are you afraid of this war that everyone in the West is talking about? Are you afraid that Russia is going to invade? It was really hard to actually find someone who would say yes. Uh, it was really hard to find believers in in this, you know, threat. Uh, everyone was sort of trying to talk down the risk, um, was trying to calm down these Western reporters, you know, who were swarming Kiev and who were swarming the cafes in in these cities, asking people, "Are you afraid? Are you afraid?" So you wouldn't find them. If if you go around the country now, people seem to be much more, uh, you know, in a way, what's the word? awake um they uh, realized that this neighbor russia that they so that they've taken uh, you know as, as a brotherly nation as, as brothers and sisters um that they were you know uh, pretty badly um, um 
um, uh, what's the word? Um, <laughs> see, that's now you see the tiring effect of traveling to Ukraine for two weeks and then giving an interview yes. in a foreign language is not the easiest thing. No, but I think that they feel betrayed. Mm -hmm. That's the word I was looking for. Yeah. And so one one interesting fact that I uh, that came across was the statistics. Uh, a sheet of statistics uh, that was presented to me by the mayor of Kramatorsk in Donbass. He said just before the war broke out, he uh, thinks that about 40% of the people of his city were actually supporting the Russians. They were pro-Russian. Mm -hmm. If you take the same, you know, uh, poll now, you'd find that about 5% of the people who are still there would actually support the Russians. So that is the one big thing that has changed. I think Ukraine has realized that the Russians will never be a supporting nation again, that they are not brothers and sisters, but indeed a big threat. Um, on top of that, for sure, you see a lot of destruction. You have a lot of families who suffer. Around 12,000 civilians have died in this war on the Ukrainian side. So there's lots and lots of sad stories. There's lots and lots of shock in these people, um, but definitely a different mentality. They know that they have to stand, that they stand alone, that the Russians will not support them. They also do know, though, that they have lots of friends in the West. The United States, mm -hmm. in particular, is one of these countries that is uh, talked highly about um, by lots of these Ukrainians I met. Uh, I'm surprised a little bit, actually, to, to hear some of that, uh, especially that there were many people who uh, didn't actually think that they would be invaded um, in 2000. Uh, it's alleged that Vladimir Putin in that year asked Bill Clinton, uh, then U.S. president, if Russia could join NATO and that Bill Clinton said no. Uh, whether or not that story is actually true, uh, we have no confirmation of it. Uh, we have been aware for at least 20 years here in the U.S. that a Russian invasion of Ukraine would eventually happen. We weren't sure when but we've been reasonably certain of it for about 20 years that it would happen at some point. Uh, how does that differ with the attitudes of people in Ukraine? Well, I think that, uh, you know, we all, we all heard the warnings uh, coming from the United States, coming from Washington, coming from, you know, President Joe Biden himself. He was standing there, you know, just hours, just days before the war broke out warning the rest of the world that they know for sure, that they know for a fact that Russia is going to invade. No one in, or, you know, hardly anyone in the West believed them and the Ukrainians did not. I think one big reason for that is that the Ukrainian government itself denied the threat of war until the very end. You'd have to keep in mind that Ukraine, um, despite all, all the, you know, the reforms that they have, you know, tackled in these past couple of years, despite everything that they've tried to change in their country since Zelensky get, got to power just a couple of years ago. It is still a very poor, very corrupted nation, and uh, it faces huge amounts of problems on, on all sorts of levels. And I think that a war was the last thing that Ukraine you know, needed right now. They were focused on reforming their justice system. They were focused on exporting their grain. It's one of the biggest grain producers on earth. Um, they were trying to keep, you know, their nation moving forward. They are trying, they've been trying to get into NATO for a long time. They're trying to become a, a member of the European Union. And so I think this, this threat of war, um, Zelensky and his team, I guess, they really were afraid that if, if, 
if they would take that seriously or if they would warn people about this this threat of war that they would immediately you know sort of hit the brakes of, of a country that is you know up and running and i think no one wanted to wanted to you know face that and no one wanted to um admit that maybe this ukrainian dream of moving into a brighter you know more, more western future is about to be stopped by by an invader that you know is mighty and strong cruel and brutal so i'd say that you know ukraine in a way was daydreaming before that war happened for good reasons for reasons that i can understand they just didn't want to you know who who wants to face the negative things that await, uh, you know, await us in, in our lives. I mean, from a personal point of view, I can understand that no one wants to deal with the bad shit, right? And I guess that was true for Ukraine too. That has changed though. If you go and ask people now, everyone that I've, I've talked to um, is, is really ready to fight and ready to accept that this war has changed the outlook for Ukraine, you know, greatly. You also have been to Kiev, uh, Samuel. Our people there, obviously, they were um, very affected by the war themselves in the beginning. We have seen uh, fights around Kiev in the beginning uh, of the war in, in, in spring. Right now it is quieter there at the moment. Correct me if I'm wrong. How are the people dealing with this in Kiev right now? Are they maybe still, uh, are they maybe again a little bit daydreaming? Because we can hear uh, a lot of times out of Ukraine that they are very positive, that they are going to win the war. And we hear that from the capital, from Kiev, so not from the people who are at the front lines. How is daily life in Kiev? And are the people there a bit day daydreaming again? They are daydreaming again. Uh, I can give you a, a couple of examples. Um, so just before I, I left Switzerland again a couple of uh, weeks ago, two weeks ago to, to travel to Ukraine, I read a story in the New York Times about rafes. I read that uh, Kiev is raving again, you know, that there are again these, these famous raves. And I actually didn't believe Wait, it. You mean, you mean like music raves? Exactly. Like, you know, electronic music raves, like partying, like, you know, like beats and, and people and drinks and drugs and, and everything. So I didn't believe that, you know, I'm a big believer in the stories of the New York Times, but I, I struggled <laughs> believing that Kiev uh, is organizing raves again. And I can now confirm that Kiev is raving again. So if you go to the city of Kiev, you'd almost think that the war never happened. The city itself has not really been destroyed. There's, there's only, if you go further west, you know, to these, these famous, tragically famous uh, villages now of Bucha, of Irpin, of Porodyanka, you'd see lots, lots and lots of, of destructed and destroyed uh, buildings. The Kiev itself though is, is pretty intact. It hasn't really been shelled. Um, the coffees are open. Um, as I said, you know, there's raves, there's parties, people are dressing up, the, the malls are open, there's, you know, the, like there's festivities on the streets. Uh, you can go and have sushi in Kiev right now, it's not a problem. You, you have lots of restaurants that are, are running again. I saw one man that was painting, you know, the, the, the benches, the wooden benches outside his restaurant again. Uh, so, so people are, are sort of celebrating life as if nothing ever happened you do see a few signs of war from time to time on the trees or also on the on the walls of some of the buildings you'd see little ads that say you know the ukrainian army is looking for volunteers if you sign up we guarantee you 1200 us dollars as a monthly payment this is quite a lot for ukrainian standards uh, you do still see statues and monuments that are sort of you know hidden behind um you know, stacks of, of sandbags. So 
uh, these statues and monuments are still protected against, you know, shells that might still, you know, hit them. And you do hear a lot of air, you know, raid sirens. So um, every day that I spent in Kiev, I was there for about four days, three days in the beginning. Every day you'd hear these air raid sirens, you know, these you, you, you all night long, basically not all night long, but again and again during the night. The thing, though, is that no one really reacts to these uh, sirens anymore. They have just become part of the soundtrack of Kiev. <laughs> Other than that, I would say the city is back to normal life. Could If you were to go to one of these raves, uh, would it be possible to find, say, Ukrainians and Russian people raving together? Or would that still not be the case? I don't think that would be the case. I think that, you know, the Ukrainians that I met back in February when I was in Kiev uh, and in other cities of, of Ukraine, they are, you know, generally open minded. This generation knows that, you know, it has to reach out to, to its neighbors or it, it knew that it had to reach out to its neighbors before that war happened. I think, though, that right now there's a very clear, uh, very clear, you know, I'd say, um, understanding that uh, you know the Russians are not their friends. I haven't actually met any Russians in Ukraine this time around. I met one soldier out in Donbass who was fighting for one of the brigades that I had the chance to, to go and, and uh, visit, who uh, is of Russian descent and who decided to join the Ukrainian army because he does not believe in the course of his motherland of, of Russia. I do, I do think though that like if you'd go to rave in Kiev right now, there's not going to be any Russians there. Mm. You, after Kiev, you have uh, gone to the Donbas region. Obviously, this whole trip is dangerous. You also um, went uh, to London to actually learn some stuff that are useful as a war reporter. Um, was there a moment uh, in Ukraine uh, where you were scared for your life? Was there a, a particular dangerous moment? Can you, can you share that with us? Yes, there was such a moment, um, you know, I'm someone who's not really, I'd say, emotional or afraid of stuff. I'm a, a reporter. I chose to be a reporter. I chose to be a war reporter for, for some time. So I um, I think I'm, you know, <laughs> a mentally stable person who likes to take some risks. Uh, we did get into a situation, though, in a village called Svanivka. That was uh, really scary to me. Um, this is a village on the front line in Donbass, so it's the last village uh, still under Ukrainian control. If, if you'd go out into the fields just adjacent to this village, you'd actually enter Russian-controlled territory. I was there together with two soldiers from the Ukrainian army, Mikhail, uh, who joined the Ukrainian army. He's actually, uh, he lives in Spain, but he came back to fight for Ukraine, just uh, to fight for Ukraine. So that shows you something about the patriotism of these people. And Andriy, the driver. Now, Andriy happens to have a small um, garden and a small house in this village of Svonivka. It's like a, you know, a holiday place for him, a farmhouse, a small one. So we went there to this village to deliver some humanitarian aid packages to these people who still live there. There's still families there. There's still old people there in these villages. And just after we delivered, delivered these, these packages, we actually spent about 30 minutes in his garden, in Andriy's garden, picking pears. Is that the word pears? Yeah. You'd have to correct me, Alex, if my <laughs> pronunciation is wrong. So these fruits, <laughs> it's pears, right? Yeah, it is. It is pears. So we were picking pears from this tree 
and uh, it was a, a very quiet um actually very calm um atmosphere in this garden i was wearing my helmet i was wearing my life jacket you know just to protect me against any sort of attack um you could actually you know you'd have this smell of, of fresh fruit in the air you'd hear you know the people talking around you so very quiet until very suddenly there were two russian rockets who actually flew right over us and hit the ground roughly 500 meters so that'd be like a quarter of a mile away from where we were standing and there was a big explosion there were two big explosions two big booms uh, i immediately you know threw myself on the ground i was lying there you know with my belly on the ground with my face in the dirt uh, just waiting for for these blasts, for these booms to to be you know over. Um, uh, I was lying there. I could hear the two soldiers, Andri and Mikhail, shouting. Now I don't speak Ukrainian. I don't speak Russian. But the, the the message was really clear. Like get up, let's get into the house. Let's get down into the cellar, into the into the basement. And this is what we did. Uh, we entered the house just you know seconds after the second blast. We were running down into this cellar that they have. Uh, just with with a little torch and I was lucky enough that I had a friend with me uh, actually my driver another Swiss guy who was filming and he was actually interviewing me I was sitting there breathing hard I was like <sighs> I was really sort of panicking because that was a life-threatening situation now we survived we didn't get hit the Russians were not aiming right you know they didn't hit us they aimed for you actually I don't know that for a fact. What we do know, though, is that Andriy and Mikhail were the only two Ukrainian soldiers in the village of Svanivka at this very moment. We do know it's that the Russians. We do know that the Russians have drones. Uh, you know that are you know, they're flying constantly. The Ukrainians too. What they do is they fly over the enemy's territory and they are filming. You know what's happening right there. They do that with you know just the usual drones, the drones you could buy at Walmart just around the corner or at Gop in Switzerland just around the corner. Well, you can actually buy them at Gop, but you'd find them at some other shop. Right. Right? Random shop. Random shop. So they, they fly around, they film the area, they are looking for soldiers, they're looking for potential targets. And they are noting these coordinates or the coordinates, the GPS data. They send the GPS data to their rocket guys and these rocket guys are firing rockets uh, with these old Soviet grad systems. They're called grad. They're, they sort of look like these high moors, but on a you know smaller scale in a way. And so what we think happened is that uh, the Russians actually saw from their drone footage that there were two Ukrainian soldiers in the village of Svanivka in this garden, and that they were actually aiming at them. So we were lucky. Wow. That's really crazy to think about how like uh, that some of that older technology can still be used for things like drone warfare uh, and it makes me a little afraid for you know in maybe three four decades when uh like things like the current u.s drones those uh, predators with their hellfire missiles are outdated will someone like uh, will someone in another war-torn country salvage those and will we see uh guerrilla forces in the future that have uh hellfire missiles well, I guess, you know, I'm, I'm sort of think when I think about that, I'm glad that I am a war reporter in 2022 and not in 2042 or in 2052 when you will be uh, president of the United <laughs> States. You'd have to you'd have to do something against that, though, because I do think that this is one of the big problems, you know, old weaponry that is still right lying around or still, you know, 
in circulation that is used in these wars. You can see that very clearly in Ukraine, actually. It's an interesting thing if, if you look at, at what the ground soldiers on both sides of these of, of this war are using. They're mostly using Kalashnikovs. Um, it's a weapon that was developed back in 1947. You know, it was again updated in the 70s. But like these are old weapons. These weapons are dating back, you know, 50 years from, from now. And that's what they are using to shoot at each other in these, you know, urban warfare scenarios. On the other hand, you have these rocket systems, these grads, they were developed back in the 1950s and 1960s by the Soviets. So Ukraine was still part of the Soviet Union back then. So both sides are actually using these grad systems. So these are very old weapons. And then if you look into the sky, that's where you see the, the top modern stuff, right? Ukraine has been supplied by the United States, by Great Britain, by other nations of Europe with these these very modern drones, with these very modern, you know, like rocket systems. HIMARS is, is one of the things that is, is widely used in Ukraine these days. Um, uh, so it, it's an interesting thing to to see the sort of weaponry that is around. There's this very old stuff, there's very new stuff. It's a big mix, it's a very dangerous mix. And um, yeah, I'm glad that uh, there's still a human element in there that sometimes doesn't aim right mm -hmm. and doesn't hit its target, which was my luck. I mean, this is such a, <clears throat> a scary story, uh, experiencing something like this. You're a war reporter and you uh, have to go to these crisis areas. Um, you potentially also have to go to another country that's suffering a war in the future. And um, maybe our listeners never had the chance to actually meet a war reporter because there are not that many of them, right? So um, what, what, yeah, what drives you to be a war reporter? You know, I had the privilege to grow up in a, in a country that is pretty much, you know, in, in modern terms, you would say a bubble, right? Um, I don't know if, if any of our listeners have ever been to Switzerland uh, or, you know, I mean, I'm sure, you know, the United States, which, which is in a way the same bubble. It's, it's, it's you know, these are places that are, are great to live in. They, they provide us with everything we need. You know, they have healthcare systems, they have schools, they have all sorts of recreational things that you can do. And to be honest, I always thought that this is actually a bit, you know, boring. Um, so when I was seven years old, and this is a true story, you could ask my mom if, if she was on this show. When I was seven years old, I heard this this word on the radio in, in my parents' house. In my parents' house, in German, the word is called Krisengebiet. So in, in English, that'd be a crisis area. And I asked my mother what this was, and she explained to me what a, a Krisengebiet, what a crisis area is. And I told her back then as a seven-year-old, I promised her two things. I promised her I will never get married. <laughs> so far, that's true. <laughs> and I promised her that I will one day work in a Krisengebiet, yeah. in a crisis area. Because this to me as a seven-year-old boy and still now as a 34-year-old, I'm not sure if, if man is the right word, but you know, a 74-year-old <laughs> guy, um, it has uh, this, this, I don't know, strange attraction. So I guess as, uh, you know, as a kid, that was sort of my dream. Uh, it still is uh, as a very egoistic or from a very, very egoistic point of view. I just like uh, going to these places where things are a bit sketchy, a bit risky, because it's such a big contrast to, to the daily life that we all know from, from our lives in Switzerland or the United States. Um, I also think though, and this, this is, I guess, the much more important point that uh, it is my duty as a journalist to to tell important stories if, if I get the chance to do that. And sadly enough, I think that most of these really important stories that are happening around the world right now 
are actually happening in crisis zones like Ukraine, like Iraq, like Afghanistan, like mm -hmm. Yemen, like all of these other places that are sort of in the shadow of this, of this big war in Ukraine right now. So I do think that it is really important for us in these bubble nations that we do have people who go out to these other places, to the crisis zones. Um, there are people who are doing a much greater job than me at doing this. But I, I think it's really important to go out there, to go into this shadow world, to to not forget about the people who live in the dark and and to really, you know, tell tell these stories. Maybe a final thought. One of the greatest books that I ever had the chance to read was Moby Dick by Herman Melville. Mm -hmm. Uh, Melville is is right now. He's he's buried in in New York City. So he wrote this book, Moby Dick, about this you know big whale hunt. And there's a quote uh, in my book. It's on page forty seven, and the quote reads, "I am tormented with an everlasting itch for things remote. I love to sail forbidden seas and land on barbarous coasts." <laughs> and I do think that this is just one of the most beautiful sentences that has ever been written. Um, I never read the German translation, so I don't know what, what that would mean in German. But that sort of keeps me going, you know, this, this phrase by Melville, this urge to actually go to these barbarous places and tell these barbarous stories to mm. uh, an audience who will hopefully not forget that there are barbarous places and that we should try to change that. Mm, I like that a lot. Um, and uh, it, I have my own experience with this that you've reminded me of. Uh, as you guys both know, I live in San Diego, which is a, a pretty big bubble itself. Like, of course, there's problems, you know, there's homelessness, uh, some violence. Uh, Nikon knows the, the dating scene here is pretty, uh, pretty rough for most people. <laughs> you should do, uh, do another podcast on that. That sounds like a crisis zone for, for, for that. <laughs> that, that'd be, I'd be, I'd be interested to hear that story. I, I feel like we have to stick to the relevant stuff <laughs> and uh, the dating, uh, the dating stuff. Um, maybe it's not Burfi, uh, an, uh, an entire episode, but go I don't on. know. I'm, I'm sure a lot of my single friends here would disagree. I'm sure they'd love to have an episode about the, the crisis in San Diego dating. Um, <laughs> I'll be listening. <laughs> <laughs> Bonus episode, maybe. But uh, yeah, so, you know, we have a bubble here uh, where despite our problems, generally things are working. Most of our services function. Uh, the bus system could use some work, I suppose. Uh, but then uh, you go over to Tijuana, uh, just over the border. It's not even a 30-minute drive. Uh, and things are very different. Uh, I volunteered there years ago. Uh, translating legal advice for asylum seekers, for migrants. Uh, and one of the things that happened there uh, when I was doing that was uh, I actually got pulled aside by the police. Uh, they, they were harassing me because they didn't like that I was helping the uh, refugees. And I had to bribe my way out of a situation with the police. Uh, you know, I was safe. Um, Someone had warned me about stuff like that uh, before I started doing this. So I was fine. I knew what to do, uh, even though, you know, I, I didn't uh, speak too much Spanish. I was still able to navigate just fine. But like that was kind of that was kind of striking to me how I can drive like just 20, 30 minutes over the border and encounter this completely different situation. Whereas uh, here on the U.S. side of things. I don't think I would usually be bribing a cop uh, here in San Diego. 
maybe I'm wrong, but I, I don't think that would happen. Whereas in Tijuana, uh, I could see it happening quite often. It's it's you know it's just what uh what what I think this world in a way has come to, or maybe it's always been that way. You don't have to go uh, to faraway places like Ukraine to to see you know dramatic changes in how societies work. That's just it's a very good example that you used Tijuana. You know, being so close to to the United States, being so different from the United States, it's a good reminder that that I think we should never take what we have for granted, right? I think that. Um, this war in Ukraine right now shows us that, you know, anything could happen really. And, and uh, we should, you know, be careful and, and you know, be reminded of, of what's really important and that, that these values that we share and that these values that we, you know, stand up for, you know, in politics, in the media, that, that they are fickle in a way, that they could be, you know, attacked and that we are not safe. It's not, it's not a very soothing message but it's the truth it is and uh speaking of that uh a question i have for you samuel is um one thing that has been in the news a lot is that russia is increasingly desperate you know their uh their invasion of ukraine is not going as well as putin thought it would at first uh and so they've started employing the same tactics as they did in Chechnya and in Syria, um, indiscriminate attacks against civilian targets and infrastructure. Uh, how are Ukrainian civilians coping with this attack on their directly on their city infrastructure? The Ukrainians, most of the Ukrainians, I'd say, are reacting to these these horrible, cruel attacks with a lot of lethargy, actually, which is in a way shocking to a spectator like me. Uh, I remember very clearly one thing that I came across in the town of Borodyanka. This is a small, you know, city just west of Kiev. It's one of these satellite cities outside of, of Kiev. It actually used to be a sort of a wealthy neighborhood too. Um, so lots of new buildings, lots of shops, lots of malls and stuff like that. And that city has been, you know, ruthlessly shelled back in February and March. So it was almost completely destroyed. Um, the first attacks came during the night. Uh, lots of these, you know, apartment buildings, they were actually bombed, uh, shelled during the night. Hundreds of people uh, have died in their beds. You know, they burned to death. They, they were trapped, uh, you know, under the rubble of, of their homes. It's just a, a very, very cruel and, and, and you know, tragic, tragic thing that happened there. And if you go to Borodyanka now and you walk through the town, you would see that there's actually a daily market taking place on the, on the village square. And that's just, you know, meters or, or, or just a few yards uh, from from these totally destroyed buildings that, that still sort of, I'm, I'm sure that they're not stable. I'm sure they could still collapse at any moment. These are these are like black ruins of, of houses that, that look like, you know, straight out of a horror movie. Um, people on this market, they actually sell socks, you know, they sell bras, they sell, you know, fruits and vegetables. Um, and it's just, it's, very normal on, on these town squares and, and i do not understand that from from my point of view it's it's sort of very tough to understand i think that these people in a way 
they know exactly what happens. Some of these people have experienced it themselves. I'm sure that most of the people who live in these towns, they have known people who died, who were killed in these attacks. And still they sort of just go on like nothing ever happened. And in a way it is shocking. On the other hand, though, I think this is probably the only way of coping with such a situation. Someone told me, a guy called Igor told me in the town of Borodyanka, you know, we do not have the energy to keep up being afraid all the time. And I think this is an interesting point. Um, it does take a lot of energy. It does take, you know, it, it sort of empties you in, in a way to, to be afraid all the time. This is not an easy thing to be afraid. You know, it's, it's high heart rate. You know, you don't sleep well. You don't eat well. You're, you're stressed all the time. So I guess the human being has, has found a way to just adapt, to just, you know, take it and go on. It's a dangerous thing in a way, because I think that people, you know, just um, take this cruel new normality as, as their, you know, future, which, which they shouldn't do. They should be reminded that they, there was a different world before that attack. They should be reminded there's still some, some cause to fight for. But on the other hand, I, I do not like judge these people for sure. Uh, mm -hmm. I understand the reaction. It's just a shocking thing to see how normal things have become. We have uh, almost six months of war in Ukraine. How do you see um, this war develop in the future? And in your opinion, should we be afraid in, in Europe, in the West, that uh, Vladimir Putin might not limit the war to Ukraine, but expand it further and that we have a, a third world war? Yes, we should be afraid. Um, I studied history uh, a long time ago. <laughs> And if you look at how other wars, um, you know, developed back uh, in, in the last century, for example, the World War II, in the beginning, World War II was nothing but, you know, uh, basically a conflict between two nations. Germany attacked Poland. Uh, now, I don't want to compare these two situations. Obviously, things have changed. Obviously, we have very different factors to deal with right now. But I think we should be afraid for, for several reasons, one of them being that Uh, Russia hasn't shown any signs of actually slowing down. They are still, you know, shelling civilians like crazy. They are still attacking cities all over Ukraine. They are still attacking cities in the western part of Ukraine. There's still air raid sirens in Kiev every day because there's rockets flying in. The only thing that has changed uh, in the past couple of months is that Ukraine is now, you know, better prepared to actually defend itself against these air raids. One of the craziest things that is going on right now, and that I think that, that we should never forget this, is that the Russians have actually started attacking the biggest nuclear power plant in Europe. It's the power plant of a, of a city called Zaporizhia in eastern Ukraine. It's very close to the, uh, to the Russian-controlled um, territory, and he, it has been attacked constantly over the last couple of days. Uh, if anything, anything were to happen to the control systems of this nuclear power plant, or, you know, if, if they would actually successfully attack, you know, the core reactor of this nuclear power plant, we might as well see uh, another Chernobyl. And that's not something that uh, I'm not trying to paint, you know, a dark picture here. This is a very real threat. And so Putin doesn't even have to escalate the war to other nations to actually make this a very scary thing for us in Europe, for us, you know, for everyone in the United States, for everyone on Earth, basically. Once Russia actually hits the nuclear power plant at Zaporizhia uh, hard enough, mm -hmm. this will be World War III for sure.
Oh, it's terrifying. It, it looks so much like the Cold War. Uh, God, that, that reminds me of uh, when I was a kid. Uh, I think I was 13, 14. Uh, the fourth Call of Duty game came out. Uh, and there was this level in the game uh, where you're in Chernobyl, the, the destroyed Chernobyl, in a gas mask. And I remember the quote that one of the characters says. He says... 50,000 people used to live in this city. Uh, now it's a ghost town. And as a kid, that really hit me. And then later, when I was an adult, I studied the actual history of what had happened in Chernobyl. Uh, and it was even more haunting than in fiction. So it, it really strikes me. It really gets, uh, it's really terrifying to think things like that could happen again. It is extremely terrifying. And I think after two years of, of the COVID pandemic, um, we know that stuff that we don't see, stuff that we don't smell, you know, can actually really be you know, scary as shit. You know, uh, the virus was really scary. Nuclear uh, radioactive radioactive stuff. We don't see that. We don't smell that. But it, it, once it gets out, once it explodes, once it's, you know, in the air, it only takes a couple of, you know, windy days and we are fucked. I have one last, I mean, this, uh, this, sounds, this sounds all very scary. Uh, I have one last question maybe to, to wrap this up on a personal note of you. What would be your message coming from the front lines of the war in Ukraine to people living in Switzerland in the United States of America, as you described it, uh, in a bubble, right? Enjoying their lives, their everyday lives with their family, doing activities. What would, what would be your personal message to people? in the United States and in Switzerland? I would say enjoy the summer, enjoy what we have, enjoy the values, the freedom, you know, enjoy the, the wealth, not, not in a financial way, the wealth of, of these lives that we are able to live in these countries. Because I think this is exactly what Ukrainians are fighting for right now. They too want to join this, I'd say, family of nations, family of peoples who do have these, these freedoms. So I think it is important for us not to be distracted too much by, by the terror that Russia is, is bringing upon Ukraine, is bringing upon the world. They want us to be afraid. The Russians want us to stop living the lives in the ways we, we live them. And I think just, you know, stepping down, you know, being afraid is, is, is giving in to, to the Russian threats and to the Russian, you know, um, terror. So we shouldn't do that. On the other hand, though, we should never forget that there are people out there, the Ukrainians are a prime example, but they're not the only one who are not yet there, who are not yet in these bubbles, in these freedom bubbles, as, as I might call them, but who want to be there and that they need not only our prayers or, you know, um, in my case, I'm not a religious person. They don't know, they do not only need my stories or my, my good thoughts. But they do need weapons, they do need um, ammunition, they really do need financial support. And I hope that as winter is coming, and winter is coming, not only uh, on Netflix or on Game of Thrones, but also in, in real life, that we do not forget about that, that we are ready to take cold showers if Russian gas is running out, that we are ready to put on the jackets in our workplaces or in our homes and freeze uh, a bit, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, freedom will will ask that all of us, and, and I do think that it's it's really worth taking it. I would like to end on, on a bit more positive note, though, if I may. Of course, <laughs> go for it. So, Alex. <laughs> I promise you that I will bring you one too. I, I, I couldn't be uh, there in the United States right now. What I have in front of me 
is a small uh, glass jar of honey. And uh, Nicola will, will read what, what's, what it says on that jar. <laughs> yes, it, uh, wow. It says uh, frontline honey straight out of Donbass. Exactly. So huh. I, got you guys, I got you guys some honey from the front lines. Uh, the story is that I had the chance to actually go there with a group of soldiers. I was there uh, with these soldiers for, you know, one and a half days. You know, I had the chance to see what they do. I had the chance to be there when they attacked the Russians on the other side. And so as a final gift, these soldiers, um, they gave me some of the honey that uh, was given to them by the farmers who are still in these towns around uh, this position where they were holding out. And they gave this honey to me and they told me, look, despite all this war, we still have bees and they still collect the honey and we still create. We do not only destroy. And I took this big bottle of honey back with me. I only had one big backpack and it was a really heavy, you know, toll. <laughs> but I thought bringing this honey home, uh, the frontline honey straight out of Donbass, it's just a good thing to to think about it and, and to see that, you know, the bees are still flying in Donbass. Mm. And Alex, you will get your jar too. When you come to Switzerland, Alex, thank you so much, Samuel, for um, bringing the honey. What a nice gift. Um, and for especially for taking the time just uh, two days after you came back, we really appreciate it that you um, show uh, explained your experiences you had in in Ukraine and shared your your uh, um, your stories with us. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for joining us. Uh, and yeah, thanks for uh, bringing the honey. That's really really cool. Great piece of history. It was a pleasure, and I'm looking forward to your dating in San Diego uh, episode. <laughs> Me time. too. I kind of hope we do it now. <laughs> okay. Thank you, Samuel. And we will be uh, just back in a moment. And we're back. That was Samuel. Uh, really great conversation with him. I've got to say super informative, uh, really perspective shaping. Yeah, I agree. It's it's so valuable to to hear from some from somebody that actually experienced it, that was on the front lines, and then uh, and who can tell these stories, right? Um, yeah, very very valuable. Yeah, it uh it it makes me a little bit uh, annoyed at at the West, especially the U.S. when it comes to foreign policy. Though I have to admit, because you know, like uh, like I was saying before, uh, we we've known for like twenty years that an invasion like this was possible. And we really didn't do a good job of helping to prevent it. Uh, I don't think we've done an amazing job of giving aid to Ukraine that Samuel was saying, you know, they, they need our help. Uh, and also, like, uh, part of why we don't let them join NATO is because they're friendly with Russia. But I, sh I would say, why shouldn't they be friendly with Russia? It's this giant super country that's right next to them. If I was Ukraine, I would also be friendly to Russia. Uh, I think it's really a shame that we didn't let them join NATO up to, up to this point. Yeah, but the question is, I mean, do you believe, Alex, this would have been possible? Because what they are saying, right, is that um, Ukraine was just not able to join NATO because the big brother, Russia, was not letting it, hap was not letting, letting it happen. And if America would have maybe stepped in earlier to prevent this invasion with by delivering weapons or whatnot um maybe this was would have provoked um something even worse or maybe uh, this would have provoked an invasion earlier don't you think yeah it you're right and i, I think it's hard to say 
like I said, I, I think if I had been Bill Clinton in 2000, you know, if that conversation actually did happen, then I would absolutely have let Russia join NATO. I think that would have headed off a lot of headaches, but hindsight it, uh, is 2020, I, I suppose, or in this case, it's literally 22 years ago. Yeah. But what I found interesting from Samuel also was um, that he said that in Ukraine, they're actually looking up and praising uh, the United States of America. Because what we hear from the president, Vladimir Zelensky, right, obviously he always wants more. He wants more weapons, he, was, he wants this and that. But apparently, as Samuel said, uh, Samuel said, in Ukraine, the people are uh, very thankful and are actually uh, praising the United States of America. Does this surprise you at all? No, it doesn't surprise me too much. Um, you know, like I, I actually agree with the Ukrainian president, you know, I do think we could be doing more, but, uh, I, I do think Joe Biden has been very swift in taking action in aid of Ukraine and in condemning Russia. Uh, I'm happy to see it. It's very different from the previous president, uh, here who kind of pussyfooted around a lot of the issues with Russia, uh, and wasn't very strong in addressing problems we have with them. And, you know, Joe Biden could still be stronger, but I do think overall uh, he's mobilized the U.S. to be more reactive to developments with Russia. Right. Here in Switzerland, it took us two, three days, um, you know, to to get over ourselves and to um, um, to also impose sanctions, basically to um, just join uh, the European Union, uh, the sanctions they imposed took us two, three days and also gave some backlash to the Swiss government. But after two, three days, they um, they joined in. Um, what is your assessment of the reaction of the West, of, of NATO in general to this war? Uh, many people are praising the West and NATO for a very swift and strong and united reaction. Do you see it the same way? I do. And I think that's good. Uh, had we been more fractured about it, I think maybe China would have acted differently and could have been a problem in this equation. But uh, for the most part, China hasn't proved themselves to be an issue. Uh, you always got to worry a little about China when it comes to issues of Russia. Uh, though increasingly, I think, in geopolitics, we're seeing China largely abandon Russia uh, in a lot of different arenas, including this one to a degree. Right. Yes. And, uh, you know, just the conflict in Taiwan, right? Um, experts uh, told me when I wrote the story about it that uh, China was just standing by on the sidelines, um, seeing this, uh, following this war in Ukraine and the reaction of the West. And, you know, the reaction of the West actually um, maybe scared China a little bit because they were surprised how still effective and united the West actually can be with all their differences they have uh, between themselves. Yeah. And you know what? Uh, something that I've been thinking about the last few days is as much as I and like other people who vote Democrat complain about the gross size of U.S. military spending, I will say that the fact that we have such a powerful military uh, does help maintain peace because it, it means countries like China are unlikely very unlikely to go to war with us, uh, you know, to kind of placate people's fears about a potential World War III. I really don't think it would come to that because uh, Russia is no match for us. You know, their nuclear arsenal is not even close 
to ours in terms of efficacy. Uh, their military is much weaker than ours. And if they had China helping them, maybe something could happen. But China, you know, uses their strategic patience strategy. They would rather dominate the world economically and make a lot of money than go to war. So I think these economic forces and the way the global economy is united uh, are really helpful on preventing like a, a greater conflict from arising from this. I see your point, but uh, nevertheless, right, Samuel uh, said that that this risk is real. And I believe what you're talking about is more like who would win a world, uh, a third world war. Obviously, there would be no winners to begin with. But, um, you know, maybe that a world war uh, breaks out, uh, although the US has a stronger military uh, and Russia would be no match, as you say it, um, there just needs to be an attack on a NATO country or an accident or something, and then the conflict breaks out, right? Who wins the conflict is another question, but this, this threat of something happening by mistake or by action of Vladimir Putin, I believe it's real. That is true. And like Vladimir Putin is definitely kind of unhinged right now. You know, I've heard a lot of reports from people close to him uh, in the news that during the pandemic, he was all locked up in the Kremlin basement looking at old Russian territorial maps from the USSR, uh, kind of going a little crazy. So that's a little scary to, to have someone so unhinged as having so much power in Russia. I agree. And with his with his age. Yes, I mean, there is so much to talk about and uh, so valuable that we had uh, Samuel uh, Schumacher on. Um, I feel like uh, I'm very excited what what other guests we can we can bring on this on this uh, season two and uh, talk about them, uh, about other issues around the world. Yeah, we get a panel of single guys and single girls uh, when we <laughs> talk about San Diego dating. No, no. <laughs> maybe maybe down the road, but uh, let's let's uh, let's let's push this a bit back. I don't um, know if that's going to be this season, but uh, maybe one day. Yeah. Um, well, um, now in the end, we will do um, something totally different um, in in this season, and uh, we will explain to you what we're going to do in just a moment. All right, so uh, we've got a new game for season two. Uh, last season, uh, I won, and thus Nicola will soon have to wear a 49ers jersey through the streets of Zurich. I am very much looking forward to it. So is Nicola. I don't remember that we played any game. Sorry, do you have any proof of that? I've got all of season one recorded. I've I've got <laughs> you like I've got you like Nixon. Yeah. Okay. I will buy one and I will uh, send you a photo. Okay. Perfect. Uh, so anyway, we've got our new game. Um, this one is a little less competitive, but just as fun in my opinion. Uh, we call it the headline game, where basically uh, each of us has two headlines that we've come across recently, uh, today, the last couple of weeks, whatever. And uh, yeah, we'll just read each other headlines and get the other person's reaction. These are meant to be, you know, just recent stuff, mostly less serious, but sometimes we'll have some pretty interesting headlines. Uh, yeah. Nikolai, you exactly. want to start? 
Yeah, I can start. It's also a nice way and a bit of a lighter way to, to end uh, an episode because we're going to talk about so much serious and sometimes tragic stuff, right? So this should be a little bit of a lighter ending. To an episode, I can start with a very, uh, with a very, very, a headline that made me very happy this week. Um, it, it goes like this historic false start. No champion has started worse than FC Zurich in the last 100 years. Wow, that must make you really happy. Uh, trust me, uh, I live now in Zurich, and it's uh, you know I had to go through some uh, through some dark weeks when uh, FC Zurich became champion last uh, last spring, last summer. But um, yeah, the new season started. Uh, my team is uh, is is performing really well, and uh, FC Zurich had the worst start in the last one hundred years. They didn't even Alex. They haven't even scored a goal. Wow. Amazing. What are, what are the problems with the team? Is it the coaching or what? So first off, you know, when you play for FZ Zurich, the, you have a lot of problems obviously going on to start with. <laughs> yeah, mental <laughs> problems, of course. Yes, a lot of problems. But uh, they have a new coach and, you know, their team was never that good to begin with. You have seen them play, Alex, last season. They just won a lucky game against us. They have won so many lucky games, so they're not that good to begin with. They have a new coach and now we see their true uh, colors. Finally. <laughs> well, as you know, uh, when I was in Switzerland, FC Zurich made a pretty bad impression on me. Uh, mm. So I definitely am happy to see them getting trashed like that. Yes, yes. It's a pleasure to witness that. <laughs> All right. Uh, I've also um, got a headline. It's kind of interesting. Um, from Jason Sudeckis, uh, an actor, I guess. I didn't want to serve Olivia Wilde at Harry Styles' house. <laughs> <laughs> okay, break this down for me, please. I I don't really follow celebrity gossip enough, considering how often I read headlines like this. So I guess there was some kind of event at uh, Harry Styles' house. You know, the guy who uh, who did that video, uh, as it was, I think it is called is the video. Right. Uh, I love that song, obviously. Um, our mutual friend Maximo actually showed it to me. Um, <laughs> but yeah, Harry Styles, I guess, had some kind of event. And Olivia Wilde was there. I think it's kind of uh, crazy. You know, they have a pretty wide age difference. I'm surprised they're friends. But uh, I also have friends that age difference, actually. So yeah, I guess Jason Sudeckis was serving people there for some reason. And didn't want to serve Olivia Wilde. Maybe there's beef. Uh, I guess mm -hmm. they don't like each other. Okay, I just had to Google Olivia Wilde, and I see her face now, and it still doesn't ring a bell. So, yeah. She was in uh, some, I think she was in Tron. That's like the movie I most know her for, but I don't think you even know Tron in Switzerland. No, it's not really, a, it's not, well, I'm also not that good with movies, to be honest, so maybe everybody else knows it. As you know, Alex, I'm not the big uh, movie geek, but uh, yes. Um, I have a political one to end it with, with my headlines. Um, Joe Biden victory lap. Climate bill could slash U.S. emissions by 40% after historic Senate vote. Oh, yeah. That, that just passed in the Senate and it's going to pass in the House, too. It's almost certain Joe Biden's going to sign it or he's going to sign yeah. it. How important is this for America and also for Joe Biden politically, Alex? Oh, man. Uh, I mean, I, as a progressive you know, I've, I've checked out the, the provisions of the bill, uh, at least what's available online, and uh, done my due diligence uh, by reading some other people's summaries of it, too. And 
I think it could be stronger, obviously. You know, I think we need to go pretty extreme at this point when it comes mm -hmm. to climate change, but credit where it's due. It is the biggest and most consequential piece of climate change legislation the U.S. has ever seen, um, other than maybe founding the EPA uh, during the Nixon era. It's bigger than anything Obama got done, uh, and Obama was a pretty big climate guy. So mm -hmm. that's really impressive, really important. It's going to do great for Joe Biden in these coming midterms, and if he runs again in 24, uh, this will be an accomplishment he can point to. It also shows the power we have uh, when we, you know, uh, are passing things on a simple majority line instead of two-thirds majority, uh, though that also makes me worried for the kind of kind of nonsense uh, Republican president could get passed in the future on the same lines. Right. Yeah. But impressive. Uh, impressive that the Democrats got it through. Yeah. Yeah. They've worked really hard. And... Great. Fight for our future, please, because climate change is terrifying. Yeah, I agree. Hit me with your last headline. Okay. Um, ooh. Ooh, here's one. Uh, and this, this is going to hurt you and hurt me. From, <laughs> from CNBC. Business travel costs are expected to rise through 2023, industry report says. Uh, break it down for me. What are travel costs? Well, you know, like flying on a plane, uh, hotels, things like that. Oh, but it was overdue, right? The, the prices are so low. I mean, obviously it hurts me because I, I'm, I'm flying uh, quite often for, for vacation and sometimes for the job. But uh, it was overdue. The, the prices are too low, aren't they? Yeah, they, especially with gas so high. But like, man, I, I was kind of hoping uh, to keep low prices because... I like traveling and uh, knowing that the prices are going to go up makes me kind of sad. Yeah, it makes it just more and more difficult to, to especially fly to, you know, to America for me or for you to Switzerland. It, it just makes it more, more pricey. I, I read that uh, in, in the Swiss airlines, international airlines, also the prices went up like, uh, I don't know, the exact number, 40, 50 percent, quite a lot. So you can feel it. It definitely has an impact, especially, Alex, imagine you have a family. You don't only have to pay for yourselves. All of a sudden, if you have a family with two children, you have to pay 200% more for a ticket. Yeah, it really makes travel harder. And yeah. it's crazy because, like, their revenue is up, even with the pandemic and all. Uh, like, I think um, in 2019, I guess that's before the pandemic, actually. But in 2019, uh, American Airlines revenue was up 110% compared to the three years before. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know what the numbers are in the pandemic, though. Yeah. Yes, no, definitely. Yeah, but uh, they had a rough time during the pandemic, and now they slowly um, have uh, the earning reports show that they slowly um, have some gains again, some winnings. Um, yes, so these were the headlines, and we finished the episode off, Alex, with, you can say it. Yeah, so we're wrapping up. Um, one extra thing, the last new thing we're doing for this season is we're going to be ending every episode on a couple questions, one from me, one from Nicola, uh, about some of the content in the episode, uh, because we would love to hear from you, hear your answers, hear your thoughts. We will be sharing these questions, not just here, but on our social media, which I'll plug in a second. So to answer these questions, go to our social media and uh, DM us your response. We would love to hear from you. Uh, my question 
is at this point in the uh, Ukraine war, uh, do you believe that we should allow Ukraine to join NATO? Why or why not? Uh, again, do you believe that the West should allow Ukraine to join NATO? Why why not? And my question will be to you, is there something you personally, personally are doing? Is it financially? Is it symbolically? Is it something else um, for the people in Ukraine? Did you maybe help somebody, a refugee? Um, let, us, uh, let us know. Um, send us uh, a text um, on our social medias, Instagram. That is 50 stars plus. 50-S-T-A-R-S-P-L-U-S. Again, that is 50 stars plus on Instagram or Spotify, 50-S-T-A-R-S-P-L-U-S. Thanks so much for listening and we hear each other in two weeks. See you in two weeks.